Good morning. Today's scripture is 1 Chronicles chapter 13, which can be found on page 345 in the Bibles around you. If you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. First Chronicles 13. David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers, who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Lebo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bela, that is, to Kiriath-Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up, the, up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down, because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry, because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, and he said, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, you are holy. There is no one like you in all of the earth. God, you are glorious in your holiness. You are fearful in your praises. You do wonders. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God, I ask this morning as we look at this passage, as we hear from your word, would you align our hearts with the reality of your holiness? Would you help us to see, would you... Would you give us a spirit of revelation, grace upon the speaking and the hearing of your word, God, that our hearts would actually not take offense with your holiness, but that our hearts would be submitted up under the way that you are, who you are. We say your ways are right and you only do good. So would you show us that this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you are just joining us for the first time this week, uh, we want to welcome you here. 
Uh, we are in the middle of a series where we're walking through the book of First Chronicles, uh, particularly as it relates to David's desire to build a house for the Lord and to order the life of the people of God around right worship to the Lord. Uh, so you find yourself in the middle, but today we're actually stepping into what is a new section of the book where for, from, from chapter 13 till the end of, uh, first Chronicles is all about David seeking to orient Israel around rightly given worship to the Lord and to the Lord alone. That's, that's the essence of what we're going to be talking about for the rest of our time in first Chronicles. And so, uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. We're going to just dive right in. I'll give you a little review and then, and then we'll, we're going to go look at your notes. If you have them letter a, uh, the Lord has been working in our church in this last season. You've heard it all over the place. Uh, we are saying it again and again, but he is calling us into a season of building the house. One of the ways, letter B, that we're seeking to strengthen and establish what God is putting before us is by preaching through these books, the books of Chronicles. They're written to those returning from the exile. So if you're not familiar with uh, the shape and the scope of the Old Testament, uh, what's happening here is the children of Israel were taken away into exile at the hand of the Babylonians because of their disobedience. And they spent 70 years as, as servants and captives in Babylon. And then by the decree of Cyrus, God stirs up a pagan king to actually send them back to do the work of building the house of the Lord again, to go and see the house of God reestablished in Israel. And so they make the trek back across the desert, you know, 700 ish miles. They find themselves in the land again. They're setting out to do this work, this small remnant of, of what used to be this large uh, group of Israel. There's about 50,000 of them and they're doing the work and it's really hard. It's really painful. It's really opposed. It's really small. And they're, they're growing to become discouraged in the face of these realities that God has called them to come do this. And it's way harder than they wanted it to be. It's way smaller than they wanted it to be. And it's a lot more opposed and difficult than they wanted it to be. And it's into this that the author of Chronicles writes this book, which is just a retelling of Israel's history with a particular view to strengthen the, the reality of building God's house among them. Let her see the message of these books is that the people of God are designed to live and flourish and find life in a particular manner. And the manner is this, whenever the people of God order their lives under the right king and with right worship, things go well. And whenever they abandon the right king and their worship gets disordered, things go really poorly. And so the author is going to highlight this again and again and again. These two elements are remarkably important for the family of God, the people of God. Submitting our lives up under the right king, which as the new covenant people of God is King Jesus, the, the rightful king who sits on the throne of David. So submitting our lives up under Jesus Christ as the only Lord of all the earth and ordering our lives around rightly given worship 
to him and to him alone. The vision of living under the blessing of God's kingdom is meant to orient people's hearts toward living with wholehearted pursuit of the things of God, right? We, we want to live under the blessing of God's kingdom, right? As the family of God, we want to experience the blessings and the life and the joy of living under the kingdom of God. We want that at work in our midst. We want to see his kingdom established like Jesus teaches us to pray, right? The kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. But this vision of the blessings of the kingdom aligns our hearts to go, how do we pursue that? How do we lay hold of that? How do we order our lives in that manner? So first Chronicles 13, like I said, kicks off a new section concerned with establishing the house of God in Jerusalem at the center of David's kingdom. So this work is going to happen in stages. And this is the rest of the book of first Chronicles. First, David sets out to bring back the Ark of the Covenant that had been uh, living in kind of this exile for a season. He goes to get the Ark of the Covenant to bring it back to Jerusalem. Then he sets out to build a house for God. That's chapter 17, where David desires to build a house for God. God comes to him and says, you can't build me a house. Your son can, but you can't. And then the rest of the book is David not growing discouraged that he can't do it. But what he does is he literally spends the rest of his life preparing Solomon to be ready to build the house. So David doesn't give up on his vow. He doesn't give up on his desire. He just reorients it. When God says, you can't build it, he goes, okay, I'll spend all of my time, energy, money, resources to get the plan in place, to get the money in place, to get my son ready to do this so that when I die and it's his turn, he's ready to go. That's the rest of first Chronicles. The remainder of this is about the labor the intentional planning, the administration, the cost that David undertook to prepare a house for the Lord, right? Building a temple. I want you to catch this. Building a temple for David wasn't just like a a cool idea. It wasn't like he had some extra money sitting around and he was like, what should I do with this money? I should make a temple that's glorious, this house that's beautiful, right? He didn't just have this like cool idea. This was a revelation from God that he had been given of something to steward because he understood something. Look at letter E. David possessed a unique revelation of the importance of worship in the economy of God. This is expressed in David's vow to bring back the Ark of the Covenant to Israel, to build a house for the Lord, and to establish Levitical worship right at the center of his government. Right? It's not to show off how much money he has or how much power he has. This is an intentional strategy that David had to pursue the life and blessing of God, of his kingdom in the midst of the, the life of God's people. He knew something. He knew that when worship was rightly given to God, everything else worked. And so he said, I'm going to give all my energy all my time, all my money, all my resources to prepare a place for God to be worshiped for who he is. 
Letter F. So the chapter that we're going to look at this morning outlines David's initial attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem and the dire results of David and the people's hasty endeavor. Right? They set out in haste. And we'll, we'll look at how we get that from the text. But they set out with this great idea and they do it in the wrong way. And it leads to some dire consequences. So look, look at Roman numeral two with me. Upon ascending to the throne, David sets out to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the people of God. In verse three, he demonstrates that Israel did not seek it in the days of Saul. This is demonstrating or intended to be for you a contrast earlier to Saul. If you remember, you were here with us in chapter 10, Saul is shown as acting out treachery to the Lord because he would not seek God. And so David, upon coming to the throne, he goes, we're not going to be like Saul was. We're not going to live in a posture of not seeking the face of the Lord. We are going to order everything around seeking the presence of God and seeking his face continually together. And so what we need for that is to go and get the Ark of the Covenant. Now you might go, where's the Ark of the Covenant? Why is it not there? If you're not familiar with the stories of Samuel, which you're intended to be in coming to this text, you might be going... Why did they not have the Ark of the Covenant, right? Didn't the Ark of the Covenant given to Moses? Or you might be going, what in the world is the Ark of the Covenant? You may have seen Indiana Jones or something like that. So you may not understand what it actually is, right? So I want to give us a little framework. What's going on? What's the backdrop to this story in order to understand it? Go to page two. So the Ark of the Covenant was far and away the most important artifact that the people of Israel had been given through the times of Moses, right? It was this artifact that had been commanded by God to be built. And it was for the nation and in the, in the national life and their thought, their most important and prized artifact. It was commanded by God to be built according to the heavenly pattern that God had shown Moses on Mount Sinai. It was skillfully crafted, crafted by Bezalel, he was the first man to be said to be filled with the spirit of God. I love this. When, when setting out to craft this uh, wooden box covered in gold, this man has uh, the skills to do it. And he sets out to accomplish this. And this is the first person in the Bible that is said to be filled with the spirit. This person who set about to craft the Ark of the Covenant. The ark itself was a small wooden box. so like almost four feet long, two and a half feet wide and two and a half feet tall. So think of like a medium sized coffee table is what you're thinking about here. But it's a box overlaid with gold inside and out. On top of the ark was what they called the mercy seat, this, this top for it. And then these two golden cherubim whose wings went up and touched one another over the top of the ark. Inside of the ark were kept the tablets of the law that were given to Moses, a golden pot filled with manna from the wilderness, and the staff of Aaron that had budded. The ark was to be placed inside the tabernacle, inside the veil in the holiest of holies. In the, in the most holy place behind the veil was the Ark of the Covenant. 
This was at the very center of the tabernacle of God. So it's clear throughout the scripture that the ark represented stuff, right? Like it wasn't just there, this is a cool artifact. It actually had in the imagination of the people of God, a really important place. It represented three things. First, it represented God's very throne. In the biblical worldview, there was a dynamic relationship between the Holy of Holies, specifically the ark that was inside of it, and the throne of God in the heavens. The ark was the physical, earthly representation of God's heavenly throne. Right? So David understood. Here's what David's getting at. We want God to reign in our midst. God's throne is represented by this Ark of the Covenant. So we need it back at the middle of our center of our our life together, our nation's life together. If we want God to reign, we need God's throne back here. And you'll see this. Look with me at verse 6 in our passage. He's going out to get the Ark, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord who sits enthroned above the cherubim, right? So these cherubim that were over the ark, the, in the worldview of the biblical writers here, God took up his seat over the cherubim, right? So this is God's throne. This is where he rules from and reigns from. So number one, it was God's throne. Number two, it represented the presence of God. So throughout the Old Testament, the presence of God filled the tabernacle or the temple, specifically the Holy of Holies. Again, the the glory and the presence of God, the manifest presence of God dwelled in the tabernacle. And so the Ark of the Covenant was seen very clearly to represent or it was closely related to God's presence. Because of this, the Ark was considered an earthly representation of God's presence among his people. Look at Exodus 40. The cloud covers the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. This is a fascinating story. In 1 Samuel, we're going to get to the story here in a minute. Chapter 4, the Israelites take the ark out to battle like a, like a good luck charm. They think because the ark is with us, God will do whatever we want him to do. Right? So they take it out into battle with the Philistines. They don't talk to God about it. They don't seek his face. They just take the box thinking it's going to be like this talisman or good luck charm that does whatever they want it to do. And, but, but here's something about the way that people perceived it, right? When they bring it into the camp, they start to go crazy. Everybody's losing their minds. They're so excited. So much so that the Philistines go, a God has just entered their camp. Right? So they understand there is a dynamic relationship between this artifact and the presence of God himself. And thirdly, closely tied to this, is the glory of God. God's manifest glory was associated with the Ark of the Covenant. So much so that when the Israelites lose the battle and the Ark is taken by the Philistines, this is what they say. Look at Samuel uh, 4, verses 21 and 22. She named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured. Right? So they, they related 
the glory of God to this artifact. There was a representative nature, a symbolic significance between this ark and God's very glory. So she said the glory is departed from Israel. Why? She tells you yet again. Why do I think the glory is departed? Because the ark has been captured. Okay, so at the time of David's ascension to the throne, the Ark of the Covenant had been kept in this town called Kiriath Jerim for over 60 years. The Israelites had taken it into battle against the Philistines in hope of garnering God's favor. You can read about this in 1 Samuel 4 to 6 is the account of this. Right? They want to use it like this good luck charm or a religious talisman. Here's, here's the point that you need to understand, though. What they do not do is seek God. Right? So the box was never meant to be this magical item. It was meant to be a means through which they inquired of the Lord. They lived in relationship with him. God didn't want to give them something that was like this uh, all-time cheat code winner, uh, you know, artifact that they had. That as long as we have this box with us, nobody can touch us. God wants them to relate to him. This is like in the, we were just reading this the other night with my boys. In Joshua chapter 5, I love when uh, Joshua is coming into the land And he shows up and he walks up to the commander of the army or the hosts of the Lord, right? The commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua goes, are you for us? Are you for our enemies? And he goes, no. The implication is God is for himself and you can join his team, but you have to do it in his way. He does not conform to what you want. He does not conform to your desires and wishes and hopes and ambitions. You conform to his, right? So they did the wrong thing. God is for us. We're just going to take the box out and he's going to do whatever we want him to. And he was sitting there going, you never talked to me about this. You never talked to me. So they take it out and they are soundly destroyed by the Philistines. And the ark is captured. By the Philistine army. They take it. They put it in the temple of their God. Dagon. And it messes with Dagon. It's an awesome story. First the the idol of Dagon falls over. Then the next day it falls over. And it's arms are chopped off. It's like it's kind of awesome. Then soon enough they realize. Like everybody's getting sick. in, In the Philistine armies and camps. And they're like. It's because the presence of the true God is here. And so they, they're like, we got to get rid of this thing. Like this thing is killing us. This is destroying us. We need to get it out. And so they send it out back to the people of Israel and it makes its way almost to Jerusalem, but not quite to this city called Kiriath Jerim. And it's kept in the house of Abinadab for 60 years. So during this time, letter F, we see from David's statement that the people of Israel did not seek the Lord. The implication is that the primary manner in which they were to seek him was by coming into his presence, which had departed from Israel in this season because they had abandoned the right order of worship given to God or by God to Moses. Okay. So David 
comes to the throne and he goes, we got to write this thing, right? We got to, we got to get back in right standing. We got to reorder and align ourselves with the worship of the Lord and seeking him again. We haven't been seeking him during the days of Saul. We got to, we got to go seek his face. That's what we have to have our whole nation around. This is, this is who we're going to be as a people. And so we got to go get the ark. And he actually convinces everyone to go do this, right? Look at, look at verses one, uh, uh, verse one of chapter 13, David consults the commanders of thousands and hundreds with every leader. And then all the assembly verse four agrees to do this. It's right in their eyes. Like he's, he's convincing them and getting them to buy in. There's, there's vision and they're excited. This is what we're going to go do. We're going to go get the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I, I like to think about this because I don't know how you get military leaders excited about worship, right? That's, that's a far stretch. The first thing David wants to do is go, Hey guys, what we don't need is more troops. We don't need more infrastructure. We don't need more roads or aqueducts or better sanitation or better programs. We need to go get the Ark of the Covenant and seek God. And everybody's like, yes, this is a great strategy. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Convincing people to do that, I think, I think could have been remarkably hard and he does it. And they're, they're after it, right? So they gather the nation. He realizes the need for the Ark of the Covenant. They set out to retrieve it from the house of Abinadab in Kiriath-Jerim. Now I want you, I want you to see something, right? This is fascinating. David's, David's all excited about this. The people are excited about this. Even the commanders of the army are excited about this. It's like, what could go wrong? Well, here we go. I want you to look at something. This is something you don't, you don't necessarily get. Look at verse two. David says to the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and from the Lord, our God, let us send abroad. Now that word, I don't, I don't like to do this all this often, but that word in the original language is the same word that's used in verse 11, where it says the Lord broke out against Yuza. And the place is called Perez Yuza. Perez is this word that means to burst out, to break out. The point is David and the people have a hasty idea. They have a good idea, but it's done in haste. They don't stop and think about it. They don't plan it out. They don't think through how it needs to be done. They're just like, we need to do this. They break out like all like visionary leadership, no planning, no thinking. We're just going to go get it. Let's, let's do it. Right? So it's this breaking out of excitement, but we're going to find out that their failure to rightly order how they do it has dire consequences, right? The centerpiece of the story is that Yuza dies. The Lord breaks out against him as he reaches to grab the ark from falling off the cart. Go to page three. So on the first reading of this, I imagine most of us read this and go, this seems unreasonable. Seems too intense, right? What did, what did Yuza do wrong? He seems like he's trying to do a good thing. 
He's reaching out to keep the ark from falling over and breaking. This is an important artifact. Why, why, why is God so angry about this? Why, why would God do this? Right? We have to understand the reality. Uh, to understand the reality of Uzzah's death, we have to have some background information. We have to, we have to actually understand what's going on here. That I, the, the initial author of Chronicles would have expected his readers to know. Number one, the people of Israel were given very specific instructions by Moses for how the ark was to be transported. It was to be carried by Levites on poles, and it was to be covered. So look at Numbers 4 here. When the camp is set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in, take down the veil of the screen, and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then put on another covering of goat skin over it, and then a cloth of blue. So three coverings on top of the ark. Then they put the poles through it, pick it up, and carry it. Right? So God told the people how to move the ark. This is going to be really important. God gave a commandment of how they were to steward his presence. How they were to steward his nearness. This really matters. Right? Deuteronomy 10 At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So we see here, the commandment was clear that the Levites were to carry the Ark. Okay, that's number one. Number two, the transportation of the Ark on a cart is inspired by pagan practices. It's actually inspired by the way the Philistines moved the Ark not by the way God told them to move the ark, right? So they had seen 60 years ago, I imagine something like this happens. David shows up to Abinadab's house in Kiriath-Jerim. He's like, hey, the ark has been here for a while. How did it get here? He's like, well, back in the day, there was this new cart and the oxen were pulling it and the box was on the back of it. It just kind of wandered its way into my house. Well, I guess that's how we move it again. So they build a new cart They put it on the back and they start moving it, right? So look at this in 1 Samuel 6. The same thing is said of the Philistines. In verse 7, I don't have it on here, but they talk about designing and crafting a new cart for this to happen. And then in verse 10, the men did so. They took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. Hey, if you want to laugh, go, uh, go read how the Philistines try to appease the Lord in 1 Samuel 6. They think to take care of the Lord, they make them like pictures of mice and golden tumors. It's like, it's meant to be really funny. It's like these things God does not want or delight in, but they, they're, they're doing anything to try to get rid of it. Look at number three. So we see that God gave specific instructions of how this was to happen. To do it this way was a pagan form of transportation. Number three, we have to remember the holiness and glory of God. To be in the presence of God requires that we are there in the manner that God has given. 
We must remember that God is to be worshipped and he is to be worshipped in the way that he wants. Okay, here's a tension we have to face. And this tension is... I don't know if you feel it or not, but this is a tension that you're going to find in the scripture. Here's the tension. One side, the Lord looks at the heart, right? God all the time in the old Testament is going, Hey, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want you doing all these things. I want your heart. Bad implication of that would be, therefore, what we do doesn't matter. But that's not actually true. The other implication is the form of how we worship, what we do, the kind of worship we give God, the manner in which we come into his presence actually matters, right? To worship God according to his commandments expresses faith. You can do the expression without the inner reality. God doesn't like that, but you cannot have the inner reality without obeying the expression he has given. Does that make sense? You can't just go like, well, my heart is good so I can worship God in whatever way I want, however I want, in whatever manner I want. The form The expression, the manner matters because God is holy. And so he gets to decide how his people worship and what worship means and looks like. Okay. So we'll we'll come back to this in a little bit. So then David, right? So the, the new cart is pulling the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. They come to a bumpy field. It hits a rock. Yuza reaches out to catch the ark and dies. God breaks out against him and he dies, right? And David responds just like I imagine most of us do, right? He kind of goes through this progression of emotion in relation to God's activity here. First, we see in verse 11, David is angry, right? Look at verse 11. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Yuza. Right? The first emotion experienced by David and many of us, when we come up face to face with the places where God's holiness breaks into the world and does things that we do not like, the most common first response is anger, right? This isn't right. How could a good God kill an innocent person like this? How could the wrath of God be expressed against somebody that's trying to help? Right? We have these thoughts. We have these initial reactions. Many times when we encounter situations we don't understand, specifically with how God deals with humanity and leads history, we're tempted to become angry. Right? We believe that our evaluation is perfect. Isn't Yuza innocent? Isn't death a bit severe? Right? You might ask those questions. It's because you start from the place that your evaluation is right. We seek to put God on trial, expecting him to justify himself. 
and his ways to us in order for him, us to trust him. Right? So this happens a lot. We experience this all over the place. How could a good God do X, Y, and Z? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why can death and darkness and sin continue in the world? How could a good God let that happen? Right? And we get angry. And it's not that we shouldn't be angry that sin and injustice and unrighteousness exist in the world. We absolutely should. But we put God on trial, expecting him to vindicate himself to us before we put our trust in him. That's what that spirit does. It says, God, prove yourself. And it starts from a place of arrogance and pride. My evaluation of the thing is right. Now, here's your problem. Your evaluation of the thing is like a teaspoon of information in an ocean of reality. Right? You're trying to empty the Atlantic Ocean with a teaspoon in the vast knowledge of God. That's what Job is all about. The end of Job, the whole point that God shows up to Job and goes, Job, who do you think you are to ask these questions? Were you there when I created the world? Were you there when I put the boundaries on the sea? Were you there when I walked at the, the deepest part of the ocean with a being that you've never seen and I knew exactly where they were and what they were for and why were they were there and when they gave birth? Were you there when I put the foundations of the mountains into place? Were you there when the morning stars were singing for joy when I called forth the the heavenly uh, hosts? If you were, your evaluation could be right, maybe. But you weren't. And so what does Job do, right? What's the right response? Shut up. Put your mouth, your your face, uh, your hand over your mouth, your face into the dust and go, God, you're bigger than I could imagine. That's the intended response, right? But David feels this. We feel this, right? We feel anger. How dare you, God? How dare you do that? And we have to understand that that is a posture of arrogance. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Genesis 18. Let God be true and every other person a liar. We start from that place. God is true. What he does is good and right. Then David moves to the fear of the Lord. Right? So he's angry at first. And then he reorganizes in his emotional state. And he's afraid. Right? Look at verse 12. And David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I do this? How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David didn't take the ark of the, of, of the Lord into the city of David but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, right? So David's anger with God turns to the fear of the Lord, which is a remarkably different posture than anger at the Lord in the midst of situations we don't understand, right? The posture of the fear of the Lord begins with the perfection, holiness, and justice of God and seeks to conform our lives to his ways, 
right? So the fear of the Lord produces a desire to live in accordance with what God desires. All right, let's look at Roman numeral four quickly. So throughout the Bible, one of the primary aspects of God's nature is his perfect holiness. The holiness of God is not only his moral perfection, but the truth that he is completely and utterly distinct from all his creation. Again, God's holiness means he exists in a category of his own. And because he exists in a category of his own, and he's the one that created everything, he gets to define what is good and just and right. We don't. Look at page four. Let her see the holiness of God demands that we worship him as God alone. Right? So this is Exodus 20. I am the Lord, your God. You may not, you cannot, you shall not have any other gods before me. You cannot have another God before me. The Lord alone, you should fear. The Lord alone, you should worship. He is a jealous God, Moses says in Deuteronomy 6. Lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. So the holiness of God, that is a consuming fire, jealousy for worship of him alone, implies, number one, that he alone is to be worshiped. But it also applies, letter D, that we offer him right worship. Right? It's not just we get to worship him however we want. We have to worship him in the way he demands. He desires. You see this in Numbers chapter 3. The offering of unauthorized fire before the Lord causes the Lord to break out against Nadab and Abihu. You see in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira in the new covenant, right? They hold back a portion from the Lord and lie about it. And what happens to them? They die. Here's, here's one that we can take close to home as we about to come to the table. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. He says there is a way that the Corinthians were eating the supper of the Lord in an unworthy manner. And he said, because you are doing this, there are people among you that are getting sick and dying. Because... You are taking this table that is meant to be for all who call upon the name of Jesus and you're making it about excluding some from the others. And because you're doing that, you are incurring God's righteous judgment breaking out in your midst and you're sick and even dying. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So we must order our lives in accordance with the way God desires. This is what's called the fear of the Lord. I'll let you read through letter E on your own. Look at letter F. I just want to say this and then we'll, we'll come to the table together. The gift of God in Christ does not remove the necessity or the necessary reverence of approaching God's holiness in the fear of the Lord. Here's something that I do really want to stir up in our midst. I, I long for us to reclaim in some places a reverent, holy awe of coming into the presence of God. 
that when we gather together as the saints of God, this is not like every other day. This isn't like every other part of our life, right? We are coming to go up the mountain of God together and to see his face among the saints calling upon his name. And the reality of receiving the grace of God in Christ does not mean that we get to be over familiar or tread lightly on that reality, right? We still need to offer right worship acceptable to him in accordance with his holiness and his transcendent glory. The beauty of the gospel removes the fear of experiencing God's condemning wrath. That's what it removes, right? So if you're in the room today and you don't put your faith in Jesus, the fear of the Lord to you is that there is a day when you will experience his righteous wrath if you do not turn and cast your life upon the grace of Jesus and receive it by faith. That's the fear of the Lord in front of you. For those who are in Christ, the fear of the Lord is not for us fear of receiving his condemnation. Right? It's not that we're going to be punished for our sin and separated for him. The fear of the Lord is a desire to live in a manner pleasing to him. It's a sober, awe-filled reverence that says, whatever you want, I want to be in conformity to that. Whatever you desire, I want my life to reflect that. However you lead, I want to follow according to that. Whatever you say, I want to obey fully. That's what the fear of the Lord is for us. And I want to read this and then we'll close our time and come to the table together. This is the author of the Hebrews, of the letter to the Hebrews writing, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. And to the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. This is, he's talking about Mount Mount Sinai. When the terror of God descended upon the mountain. He says, you're not coming to that. You are coming to Mount Zion family. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. To innumerable angels in festal gathering. To the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. To God, the judge of all. That's the fear of the Lord. That you will stand before the judge of all. How your life is ordered and aligned. Even in Christ Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. There is a day where we will stand in the presence of the God who is the judge of all. We come into his presence And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now hear this. See to this that you do not refuse the one who is speaking. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And what's the result? What's the result? Just have a good heart. Just have a sincere heart. No. Offer to God acceptable worship. What's acceptable worship? Worship offered in spirit and in truth, in a spirit of faith, through Christ Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's 
acceptable worship. When we come into God's presence on the merits of Jesus alone, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that is acceptable worship. But what is the posture we are to have in offering acceptable worship? Reverence and awe. Why? Because God is a consuming fire. Right? You don't play with fire. You don't trifle with fire. You don't just haphazardly deal with it. If God is a consuming fire, we come before him in a spirit of reverent, awe-filled submission to his ways. Offering him right worship through Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit in reverence and in awe. Amen.